So we open up to Matthew chapter 9. We were looking at this last time, last week, we at the nursing home kind of, um, as I said, flew about 30,000 feet above the subject. In the first 13 verses of chapter 9, I want to look a little bit deeper if we can, maybe land the plane and come down to ground level with... Uh, these verses from chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. And this is when Jesus has moved off and he has gone around the Sea of Galilee. And as he's passing by, it says in verse 9 that he passed forth from thence and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he, Matthew, arose and followed him, Jesus. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So, when we look at this section of Scripture, again, we've moved off from where Jesus had healed the man who had the uh, paralysis, and he had rebuked and kind of redressed the, um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or the Pharisees and the scribes at that point in time. Now we fast forward a little bit, he's walked off from that scene. And he has gone forth and he has found Matthew, also called Levi, who is now sitting at what is called the receipt of customs. And basically it's a customs house, a place where you collect taxes. Okay. So far, if we look at who Jesus has called, we have Simon Peter, we have Andrew, who's Peter's brother. We have both of them were fishermen. Okay. We have James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Okay. They were also fishermen. And then you also have the account of Philip and Nathaniel. Okay, you remember Philip and Nathaniel were the ones that uh, Nathaniel and, and Philip, as they were called, you know, had the um, the scene where they say nothing can come, come this good out of Nazareth. And uh, also, you have the scene where Jesus approaches him and says, "When I saw you underneath the fig tree, um, I was there with you." And so you, that, that's where those two come into play. But you already have these six. Apostles already called out, okay, at this point. Also, even though we don't really know a lot about Philip and Nathaniel, you see Simon, Andrew, and John, James, and John, they were fishermen, okay? Um, they, I guess you could say they might be a surly bunch of, of dudes, okay? Um, we definitely see that Peter, after Jesus is crucified, Peter goes back and he's out fishing in, you know, uh, his native garb, I guess you could say. A uh, nice way of saying that he had no clothes on, but he was out there fishing. And so you can see they're probably a little little less refined around the edges. These were not the social elites. These were very common blue-collar people. But in general, you don't think of their profession as being a um, one of ill repute. Okay, So fishermen in that point in time are in the Sea of Galilee, pretty, I mean, pretty common. That's what a lot of people were in that area. Philip and Nathaniel, we don't know about, but again, even from uh, their point of view, you know, uh, I think it was Nathaniel that made the point, you know, 
what can come, what good can come out of Nazareth. So you kind of have this idea of maybe they are they were a little more highbrowed about their opinions of people. But Matthew or Levi is the son of Alphaeus, and he is an interesting character because he's the first one that now we're gathering from a less than reputable source. Okay, so we've moved on from these kind of blue collar. Uh, working class, you know, average Joe, good, humble people kind of people. Now we're getting a little bit to the fringes. Now we're, we're bringing in people who the general population of the Jews viewed as a bunch of no good, worthless extortioners and, tra- and uh, traitors. Okay? Traitors, not traders. Okay? So the custom was a tax that was imposed by the Romans... Okay, after they were occupying them. So you think about occupied Israel. They are now occupied by Rome and they are made to pay taxes just like every good Roman occupants were. And so they had these people that they co-opted in who were the tax collectors or the publicans. Okay, from the uh, probably the Latin or the Greek publicanus. But those were the people who were made to take the taxes of their local constituency. So they made the point that it was easier to get someone who knew the terrain, knew the people, knew where they were trading and knew where to collect customs. Easier to get those people to collect the taxes than to have some foreign Roman entity come in, didn't know the lay of the land, didn't know where to go. Okay? So you have locals who were co-opted into this, which turned out to be a pretty lucrative gig. Okay? You were set up. You were under Roman protection. You had a Roman job. Okay? This would be like government work. You know, you look at government work, government pension, government things like that. People like those kind of jobs because they feel like they're set up. Okay? But there was a tradition amongst these publicans, and that was that you could skim a little off the top. You know, if Rome expects $5, you can say the tax is 7 and you keep 2 Rome gets 5 everybody's happy. Okay? Of course, other than the mass population who's now mad at you for stealing their money. All right? But you got a pretty sweet job. In fact, uh, Zacchaeus, you know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Okay? Zacchaeus was considered to be a chief publican, which was the idea that maybe he was an overseer of multiple publicans. So if you thought it was bad to be a publican, to be a chief publican was even worse. Okay, Not only were you a wicked extortioner, but now you had a pyramid Ponzi scheme going on that uh, had all sorts of little extortioners underneath you. So you were the lowest of the low, if you could think of it in that way. But here you see with Zacchaeus, Jesus ate with him too. But here these people were not very well uh, received. They didn't like them. In fact, the Jews viewed such favor for Rome as betrayal and equal to treason against God. And that the rabbinic sources, those of the rabbis, would consistently align Jewish tax collectors with robbers. Okay? So, needless to say, Matthew, or Levi, was not a very um, acceptable person in the eyes of those who were watching Jesus. Okay? So the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others that would have seen him bring in this man, even maybe Peter, okay, and Paul and um, John and, uh, and and all these other apostles, okay, who were they were they would have been those blue collar people who would have been coughing up these taxes to old Matthew, okay. In fact, you could probably allege or kind of make some connection that maybe Matthew was even kind of connected or known, okay, to. Peter, because they were all fishermen in the Sea of Galilee, and here Matthew is, his, his receipt of custom is set up on the border, on the edge there of the Sea of Galilee. So, 
You know, you've got them being like, hey, this guy used to steal taxes from us. Okay, kind of reminds me of Paul. Hey, this guy used to kill us. Okay, now you're going to bring him in and make him an apostle? What makes him worthy of that? Don't you know he's a robber? Don't you know he extorts? Don't you know he's a low-down traitor to the nation? So they were definitely despised. And again, you know, you ask the question, well, can they, can you blame them? Can you blame them for not liking the publicans? I mean, these people stole money in the name of Rome, the occupying oppressive force that was over them. But again, it's an amazing thing that we see here with what Jesus is doing. You know, we even see him at some point calling Judas into his little circle. So obviously, whereas we, or as the Pharisees or the Sadducees in particular in this case, would have a view of these people and say, why would Jesus call them? What we see is that ends up being Jesus's kind of M.O. is calling sinners. So what happens here? When you see Jesus call Matthew, you know, he's doing his job. This was a very lucrative job, a very hard-fought job. Might have been a little bribery, some extortion going on to get the job. Because you wanted that good government job with that good government pension that lets you skim a little bit off the top, make yourself pretty wealthy, okay? But here's the overwhelming power of Jesus. You don't have any kind of background on this to show that Matthew had some previous relationship with Jesus, had followed Jesus around, had seen all of Jesus' works, had marveled at them and said, oh man, if Jesus just came tomorrow and asked me to follow him, I would give it all up for Jesus. Okay, You don't see Matthew listed in maybe those three different discipleship things we looked at towards the end of chapter 8. You don't see him as the man that ran up to him and said, Jesus, I'll go with you wherever you go, you know? Jesus, I'll go with you. Just let me go bury my father. Jesus, I'll go with you. But I got some business to attend to first. You know, you don't see him listed as that. You just see him sitting, doing his job. But Jesus says, Matthew, come follow me. Well, who are you? What do you, why, why am I, where are we going? That would be a logical question to ask. Where are we going? Where are you taking me? Maybe a little stranger danger flag is going up right about now, okay? I mean, he didn't pull up and offer him candy, but I mean, still, I mean, a guy walk up and ask you to go follow him, you got to kind of question. I hope none of us today in certain situations would be uh, as um, accommodating, okay? Random stranger walks up to you and says, come follow me. Usually the best question to ask is, where are we going? Who are you? What are we doing? Okay. Here, none of that detail is included. All you see is Jesus walking up to Matthew and saying, come follow me. And Matthew, in one of the most understated, yet probably one of the greatest examples of faithful action of a child of God, doesn't ask questions, doesn't debate, doesn't weigh the pros and cons. He just gets up and follows Jesus. Now we see this with Peter and we see this with Andrew and we see this with the sons of Zebedee that even with the sons of Zebedee it says they got up and they left their father who was mending the nets. Now again, if you're walking out on daddy and daddy just had his two main sources of labor, okay, get up and didn't even give you like a, hey, we'll be back later just a, you know, see ya, I'm out. All right, you got to imagine Daddy, what old Zebedee, okay, Papa Zebedee, was probably a little bit maybe perturbed by this course of events. 
But a fisherman, as we have seen, there's already four of them that just got called. You know, a fisherman around this area, you're a dime a dozen. Okay? Plenty of fishermen around there. Lots of fishermen around there. The fisherman role was not necessarily as lucrative or as highly fought for as maybe the tax collector role would have been. Okay? Again, it's hard to get those government jobs, isn't it? So Levi here gets up and walks away from this very lucrative, very safe, very plush job. Okay? No questions asked. He doesn't, like again, he, there's, no ways, there's no weighing of pros and cons here. He didn't say, well, you know, I don't know, how long, how long are you expecting to, this to run, Jesus? And what kind of things can I get out of this? And where's my benefits? Where's my kind of cost-to-benefits relationship? What is it going to be for me? How much do I have to put in? You know, because Jesus' response had been, well, you know what? You're not going to go lay anywhere because I don't have any place to lay my head. Um, it could end up with your death. There's a plus. What do you think about that? You're going to give up everything, lose your job, lose your house, lose your family, lose your money, lose everything to follow me for three and a half years, and then I'm going to die. And you're going to go into hiding. No cost to, to benefits relationship there. He just says, come follow me. And Matthew gets up and goes and follows him, leaving everything behind leaving everything behind that would have been a strong attachment, a strong draw, okay? Something that definitely would have been tugging at any one of us. How could I get up and leave this job to go follow a stranger without any kind of assurances? I think we all have difficulties with that. But when you look at the nature of him, okay, look at the nature of Matthew, look at the nature of what he did, what people perceived him to be, okay, you got a guy that was not well accepted. I mean, if Jesus was going to surround himself by yes men, okay, or people that were good and attractive, you know, you want to get a, this is just natural stuff. You want to get your group, you want to get your crew, you want to get your objectives met best, will surround yourself by the best people, right? Okay, you know, there's, that, that's just natural, you want to you put around you the good, the best, the brightest, the best looking, okay? You get a good PR campaign going and then you're really going to take off and have some traction, okay? Well, what you don't do is you don't bring into your group the one person or groups or classifications of people who everyone hates, okay? That would just be a killer to your message. All right? That just doesn't make sense. So you want to get successful, you don't bring in the person that everybody is going to have a hard time getting over. Okay? Maybe your message is strong. Maybe you well, and it's Jesus, so I'm gonna say his message was pretty doggone strong. But you're always gonna have that elephant in the room situation where people are gonna to be too distracted by the person that's standing next to you who they know is an extortioner. So they'd be like, well, I mean, how true can his message be when you say don't covet and don't steal? How can I really believe that when the dude sitting next to you is a stealer? He's a, he's a thief. He has robbed us for years. He's extorted us. 
How can I really believe your message, Jesus, when these are the people that you hang out with? Now tell me that that does not sound familiar. Tell me that that cannot be applicable in so many ways. So if we look then, because this is addressed, the publican theme is addressed in multiple places. But most importantly, what you gain by seeing this and what we see by Jesus is overall the main point. Write it down. This is your bullet point. That The main point is that Jesus is seeking and saving sinners. Okay? That was the main point. He encounters them everywhere. And his message is generally the same. But you see this kind of play out in another area. When you look over in Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 14, you have where John the Baptist, the message of John the Baptist, you have the account of him preaching. And in this section of Scripture in Luke chapter 3, it says, He to the multitude, John to the multitude, that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? Okay? That's a logical question. This is, again, Jesus says, come and follow me. What? Where? Why? When? How? Okay? John the Baptist comes on the scene in his camel's hair suit, and he says, you need to repent, and you need to bring forth fruits that are meat, or fruits that Bring forth fruit that show repentance, okay? Not lip service, but actions, right? And so they ask the question, well, then what are we supposed to do? What does that look like? How do you do that, John? And he said unto them, he that has two coats, let him impart it to him that has none. He that has meat, let him do also. Then came also publicans to be baptized. Hey, we're talking about some publicans, remember? publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? Okay. What's the example for us? And John said unto them, Exact or take no more than that which is appointed you, publicans. I.e., quit skimming off the top and quit extorting the people that you are collecting taxes from. Quit taking more than what you're supposed to take. That would fall under, thou shalt not steal. That would fall under, thou shalt not lie. Okay? It'd also fall under the greater theme of love God and love your neighbor. And he said unto them, exact no more than is appointed to you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, and what shall we do? And he said unto them, do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. So what's interesting about this section of, of Scripture with John's message here is John's, which is the same that Jesus took up. Jesus went forth preaching the gospel of the kingdom, which was repent and be baptized. Okay? So preaching baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, repent and be baptized, that's what John and Jesus both did. 
And John here addresses three separate groups of people. He addresses, which he doesn't list it out here in, in Luke's account, but in Matthew's account, the ones that he says to, oh, you generation of vipers, okay, is the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's Matthew chapter 3. They came up and he says, oh, generation of vipers, you Pharisees and Sadducees, how, who told you to come and escape the, you know, the damnation of hell that you're looking at? Okay, that's what he tells them as Jesus looks in two other places. Jesus will use the same phraseology with the same group over and over again. Oh, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Oh, you generation of vipers, you know, all this stuff. So he's talking to them. He's talking to the multitudes. And he talks to the publicans and the soldiers. But to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he tells them the exact same thing that he tells everyone else. Repent and bring forth fruits. To the multitudes, he tells them, repent and bring forth fruit. He's calling to both of these groups and he's telling them, repent. You are not already perfect. Repent. Now the Pharisees and Sadducees walked on the scene like, why do we need to be baptized? The multitudes walked on the scene and said, we want to be baptized. Now what are we supposed to do? Both of them, he said, Repent and bring forth fruit. Not just repent, repent and bring forth fruit. Okay? We understand that's together. So he says to both of them, you are not already perfect. You're not already good. You need to let go and repent and turn from something. And he addresses specifically three different groups there. He addresses the soldiers, the publicans, and the multitudes. And I guess by... You know, extension, you could say also he was addressing the Pharisees because he was telling them that you are a fruitless tree that's going to be cut down and thrown into the fire, which he repeats uh, repeats again over and over and over again, all right? But what's interesting about the Pharisees in all of this and the Sadducees is they had the religion, okay? They thought of themselves as perfect. And as far as doing stuff, I mean, the Pharisees were blameless as concerning the law. They kept the law perfectly. Say, well, isn't that fruit? Well, obviously, Jesus didn't think it was enough, okay? Jesus obviously sought something else, which is going to be revisited here in a few verses. But with the people, he gives them kind of a general love your neighbor attitude. If you have two coats and there's someone that doesn't have one, you give one of your coats to them. If you have extra food and you see people who do not then you give food, your extra food to them. Quit keeping for yourselves and feasting for yourselves on the excess blessings of God and not share that with the people that God intended for you to share it with. God didn't bless us with all that we have so that we can sit back and go, man, don't we have it good? Hasn't God been good to us? Look at all that we have. Let's just sit back and enjoy everything that we have for ourselves and feast it upon our own lusts and enjoyment while people are starving and freezing and cold. This goes back to James, or I guess from this point in time goes forward to James, when James makes the point that Faith without works is dead. And the example he gives, it says that if you say you have faith and then you go out and you see some brother who is starving and cold and you look at them and say, be warm and be filled, go in peace. God bless you. I'll pray for you. He says, you have done nothing. He said, except you take up your coat, take up your food and give it to him. Jesus is teaching this or John by the Holy Spirit is teaching this way back at the beginning. Jesus is teaching this all through Matthew 5, 6 and 7, which is what we've been going through over and over and over. 
that you not only doing the coat thing and the food thing to those who are neighborly and lovely and kindly and the ones that we love to do that for, but you're also doing it for your enemy. That when he's thirsty, you give him water. When he's hungry, you give him food. Needless to say, this was some stuff that people did not want to hear. And I'm just going to go ahead and just blow your little bubble today. Lots and lots of so-called Christians don't want to hear this today. But that's what Jesus said. So if we're going to be Christians... We got to do what Jesus said. He also addresses the publicans in particular. And what does he tell them to do? Quit being a publican. No, he says, quit stealing. Quit extorting people. Be honest in your business. And the soldiers, he does likewise. He says, do no violence to any man. Didn't say quit being a soldier. He said, quit using your soldier abilities. Quit taking your sword and using it to beat people up, to accuse people falsely, to scheme and contrive. And all you got to do is go listen to a brief history of Rome. And my goodness, the soldiers, that's all they did. Okay. You had Praetorians who were the elite guards of the emperor there that give him his life. And some of the Praetorians are killing emperors left and right and putting their own people in their place. Using their soldier status to extort, to falsify things, to beat people up, take things from people, take wages from people, steal money from me. I mean, this is just, this is kind of rape and pillage and plunder mentality, okay? And he says, you can't do that. That's not acceptable. If you are going to follow Christ, you cannot do those things. Again, this goes back to everything we've been talking about. When we look at the situations that go on on a daily basis, and we talked about this Wednesday night, and we see it because it's in the headlines today, you've got um, a senator who's out there talking about how pro-life he is, okay? And he's fighting for pro-life issues, which, amen, I love him to do that. But then it comes out, oops, he's got a mistress. Oops, he got her pregnant, and oops, he told her to have an abortion. Well, now we see kind of a contradiction here. And then you wonder why people look at it and go, yeah, look at all those hypocritical, fake Christians. So that's why this is so exponentially important. It's not because we're trying to be good PR people for Jesus, okay? The publican that he brought into his realm was not a good PR person for him, okay? But it is about showing what really being a Christian is all about and calling out fakers like that, okay? Condemning things that aren't Christian and not just sweeping it under the rug and going, yeah, well, but you know, it's okay because, you know, he, he voted again, you know, it's okay. No, calling it out. That's sin, brother. You need to repent. Just like Jesus said. So Jesus didn't call together in his group these well put together, beautiful, successful, cleaned up, perfect people. Matthew is this epitome of, again, the wrong PR person to choose. You should have chose a Pharisee, Jesus. You should have chose a Sadducee. You should have chose one of those nice, super holy, righteous looking persons. It would have gotten, see, think about how many problems Jesus could have alleviated if he had just filled his crew with Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, Levites. Man, that would have just, I mean, you wouldn't have ruffled any feathers. You wouldn't have caused any stir. 
But he didn't call these holy, righteous, awesome people. Instead, what he did is he called these broken, busted up, liars, extortioners, sinners. Surprise, you know, didn't didn't think there was any out there, right? And he called them not just to follow them, but he called them to repentance and he called them to holiness. We were not holy to begin with. Do we understand that? We were not holy to begin with. Christ called us to holiness. And the things that we were do not prevent us from coming to Christ. And the things that we were do not prevent Christ from bringing us from where we were to where we are or where we will be. Jesus didn't look at him and say, well, you got to get rid of this whole publican thing first. You know, you got to take care of that. Go out and make sure you clean up things. Get some good publicity going. Maybe take the things that you extorted and go give them to charity. And then let's do a big PR campaign about that. Let's show how really you were just misguided and misled. And you didn't. And then you come. And then once you've got yourself cleaned up looking good and everybody, you know, then you can come and be a part of my crew. He called him when he was ugly. He saved us when he, we were enemies. So the work of Christ brings about that action, that repentance that's followed by action, giving the coats, justly exacting your job, being a good soldier. All that stuff is bound up of Jesus calling us out from where we were into this holy life Okay, that is bound up in actions, right actions, actions that reflect our Creator and our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So he goes on and he says that it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house. Behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. If you go over into Luke chapter 5, you'll see that it says that Levi or Matthew made him a great feast. It's a different kind of telling of the story as we talked about last chapter. Levi was so excited and so overwhelmed by Jesus calling him that he says, Hey, Jesus, come back to my house. We're going to throw a feast. We're going to have a party. Okay? So he throws him a feast at his own house, and there was a great company of publicans and others that sat down with them. So these publicans and these sinners, they've come to eat with Jesus, right? Which just makes sense, because, I mean, if you're a publican, you're not going to be liked by anybody, but probably your other publican friends, okay? So, you know, I mean, it just makes sense. When you get ostracized and kicked out of society, the only ones who are left to be your friends and hate dinner with are those who are ostracized and kicked out of society with you, so... I'm sure the lepers all had dinner together. I'm sure the publicans all had dinner together. Publicans didn't have dinner with the lepers because obviously they wouldn't. But um, but you see kind of when you get kicked out to the outer fringes there, it's the outer fringe people who hang out together. So all these publicans and these sinners, which again is a very interesting thing. For the first time here, you see it kind of expressed in this way. They're not just calling people's publicans and alluding to some sinful behavior. They're not just calling whoever and, you know, they, they're calling them out. He had dinner with sinners. I don't even know what group of people that would involve, okay? Because obviously you've got some stratification here. The publicans were robbers and thieves and extortioners, sinners, okay? But then there's just this group of people straight up called sinners, all right? Who all that included? Maybe those are prostitutes and harlots, and I don't know who it is because he even other places, it calls people out harlots who are harlots. So I don't know who these sinners are, but they obviously were sinners, okay? And I think that there's a 
interesting tie with this because what you have contrasted to the sinners are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You catch that? He's eating with publicans and sinners and it's the Pharisees and Sadducees sitting at the other end of the table going, why would he do that? Kind of implying they don't think that they are sinners. There's the sinners and then there's us. Okay? There's the sinners out there and then there's us. Okay? We're the holy ones. We're the righteous ones. We're the ones that have everything together. We're the sons of Abraham. We're the ones that have it. We washed three times. We washed three times before we came in here. And then I thought I forgot that I washed and I washed again just to make sure. Okay? I've washed my cup both in and out. I've washed my plate. I've washed my hands. I've washed my toes. I've washed my feet. I am cleaned up. I am not a sinner. I am a Pharisee. Think about that mentality. Hold on to that mentality. So it's interesting here that that word is used, that he was eating with sinners, because that is a derogatory term, especially when you're looking at it with the eyes of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, we sing songs here on Sundays, and we're Jesus, the friend of sinners, okay? And we sing, I mean, we sing about it like we're all sinners, okay? And we want to talk about total depravity and everyone's sinners. And Jesus came to save sinners and all this stuff. And we have a kind of different spin on it. But here, these Pharisees, they're, no, sir. Not I, said the duck. That's not me. So it's interesting they denote this. Because this is not written from the point of view of a Pharisee. But he denotes it in this way. In a nice, beautiful kind of literary scheme to be able to play the contrasting. Okay? This is just, that's, you, you see this happen so often in literature and in movies and things like that. So you can set up a conflict or a contrast. You've got a group of people over here specifically listed as sinners compared to the other group that's going to start talking here in a minute. And you can obviously assume where they're coming from. The non-sinner group. Okay? So Jesus now has brought in this sinner, but not only that, he's now done what we all feared. He's going to bring other sinners with him, okay? That's the biggest problem. What if? Maybe you get by with one, and if you can keep him all cleaned up and looking good, then maybe we won't have other sinners around us, but, you know, you just got this problem that if he's a sinner, then he probably used to run with sinners, and there might be more sinners that come around. That might mess up how we look. That might mess up how we act. That might mess up how we interact. That might mess up a lot of things of the perfect little world that we have established. So here he's sitting down to eat with all these sinners and publicans. It's a very big Middle Eastern culture deal. Sitting down to eating with people. That was a big showing of intimacy. Okay, It's not like he is hanging out Okay, outside maybe in some other place. No, he's now sitting down. This is in their house. We are intimate. This is a friend on friend thing that would be going on here. So we've gotten really close here. We're now breaching some walls. We're breaking down some barriers. We're doing some social things that just weren't allowed. So... You know, you do have to kind of raise the question here because with the Pharisees, they're looking at these publicans and they're looking at these quote-unquote sinners. They're labeling these people as such. What was it about them that gave them that idea? What was it about them 
that they could say, these are sinners. I mean, I don't think they wore name badges. I don't guess. Maybe they did. I don't guess they had a special hat they wore. I mean, obviously, there's people who were called prostitutes and harlots that are obviously identifiable in that way. But that would just be making an assumption that that's the only people here, these very easily identifiable sinners. But these Pharisees sure knew how to call them out. So you think about how the perception is of what we see and how we judge people by their appearance. I cannot believe by any stretch of the imagination that somehow these Pharisees had just intimate knowledge about the dealings of every single person sitting at that table. Okay? That they knew they were sinners because they knew all about their adultery, knew all about their prostitution, knew all about their thievery, knew all about their whatever. Okay, the only person sitting at this table who knows who's really sitting with him is Jesus Christ. Okay? But somehow they are making a judgment about these people who are sitting down there with them. So it just makes us ask the questions. Have we ever judged someone just by their appearance? Do we judge people just by how they look? Maybe they've got a few many, a few too many tattoos, you know. Well, I mean, can they really be a good Southern Baptist believer with tattoos? Don't they know that it's tattoos that will send you to hell because the Old Testament says that thing about marking your bodies, but also says that thing about rounding the corners of your beard that we seem to don't worry about, okay? So, you know, is it, is it one of those things that, like, maybe you looked at them, oh, they got, you know, they just, they're too tatted up, okay? They don't dress just right, okay? Because, you know, you have that Sunday dress and they're not wearing it. Maybe they just don't look like they are believers. Or they just look like they're sinners, you know. Hang out on the wrong side of town. So it just makes us ask the question, what were they actually doing or not doing that caused these Pharisees to judge them in that way? But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples... Why does your master eat with publicans and sinners? Why would he do that? The Pharisees' accusation, you know, which they're going to make on numerous, numerous occasions, they make it about Jesus all the time. They actually label him. He is a glutton and a wine-bibber, okay, if you're going to use that, you know, old English word. He's basically, he's a drunk and a glutton because all he likes to do is eat and drink wine with his friends. Oh, and his friends, he's a friend of sinners and publicans. He always eats with these people. This man cannot be the Messiah. He cannot be the son of God like he just claimed, you know? He can't claim that son of man, Messiah or messianic title because who would think that God would come down and eat with sinners? That's just not how that goes. He may eat with us because we're Pharisees. I mean, of all people, why would he not eat with us? You know, of all the people, of course he would come down and eat with us because we are perfect. We're not sinners. We do everything right. But how could he associate with sinners? That means he must not be the Messiah. Because if he really was, he would have been a Pharisee. He wouldn't have been an average carpenter's son. And he most certainly would not associate with these people. Because if you associate with these people, how can you really be the holy, righteous son of God? 
So it is a point that we have to be careful about, a point that we have to evaluate with ourselves to make sure that we are lining up more with the Messiah's attitude on how he sees people versus lining up more with the Pharisees' attitude and how they see people. Who are we lining up with? Who are we sitting with? Who are we allowing ourselves to be around? Have we, because we've been going to church for so long, gotten to the mentality that we think that, even though nobody would actually ever say it, you know, I don't think anybody would ever come out verbatim and say, no, I know I'm holy. I know I'm righteous. I know I'm not a sinner. It's kind of like when we did that little exercise earlier about how many of us would call ourselves liars or adulterers or coveters or things like that. And I'm sure nobody would raise their hand readily and go, oh, yes, I'm a complete and utter liar. Yet, we'll lie on occasion, you know. We covet. We think things we shouldn't think. I mean, all these things line back up to realize, no, you know what? We're still sinners. We still fall in that category. There is none of us, or are none of us, I guess should be the right English. There are none of us, nor will there ever be any of us, okay, who can sit back as these Pharisees and Sadducees and say, I have got this nailed down, and now there is a me and y'all, or a them and us mentality. That somehow we have reached a level of holiness in our lives that we could ever look out on somebody else and go, you need, you need to either get away from me or get where I'm at because you're not right. You are not doing right. And until you do, don't come around here. Till you cover up all your tattoos or go get them lasered off or whatever. Okay. Till you start looking a little bit more like your good Sunday Christian. Till you start doing these things that have this nice, good outward appearance. Don't we, you're you're not really one of us. But we got to remember that what Jesus was telling us back at the beginning of chapter 7 about judging not. Remember, we went through that whole thing and we evaluated that and we fleshed that out. And we talked about that to judge is not wrong. Okay, That Jesus was not saying that you can never make a judgment of what is sin and what is not. And that you're never supposed to call someone out and say, look, brother, look, sister, you are not lining up with what Jesus said to do and you need to repent. That's not what he's saying there ever, any shape, form, or fashion. What he is saying there is that for a man who has a mistress and has told his mistress to commit abortion, to turn around and look at somebody else and say, well, you are evil for getting an abortion, would be a hypocritical, judgmental falsehood. And for us not to judge ourselves first... And evaluate our own wicked sinfulness and repent, but to look at everybody else and go, well, you just, you're just not there. You are not where you need to be. You need to repent of that because that is wrong. And that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing here. How could Jesus eat with these sinners? Implying, we're, we're okay. What do we need? To repent from what do we need to what do we need to get out of our lives what wickedness or evil because we are pharisees we don't have those kind of vices 
These are the same groups of people that Jesus will look at and say, you are whitewashed tombs. You look really good on the outside. Going on in verse 12, it says, But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I've wanted to go back and revise okay, the Bible because we believe in provider-neutral language. Okay, So see here, he is implying that it's only physicians that take care of sick people. And we have mid-level providers, okay, nurse practitioners and physician's assistants who provide care as well okay so we need to make this more we need to make this more provider neutral okay so those that behold need not a provider of health care okay um but they that are sick but go ye and learn what that meaneth i will have mercy and not sacrifice for i am come not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance jesus yeah, there you go. There you go. So Jesus here in just a perfect, awesome rebuke calls these people out. Okay? Because he's making a he's making that kind of literary jump we were talking about. He's making a particular point about the condition of the people in question. Not just sinners, but people who are sick. Okay? You know, we've seen songs about the, and we're going to try to say this and not get tongue-tied, the sin-sick soul, okay? We talk about the idea of this as a sickness, and as we've said before, there is no greater sickness than death, okay? That's pretty, the end, that's pretty much the terminal end of all great sicknesses, okay? That is a sickness that no matter who your provider is, they can't fix that, even nurse practitioners, which I know is hard to believe, but death is terminal, Okay? But he's giving them the idea of sickness, someone who is afflicted. And Jesus has already made a good kind of, uh, good kind of campaign here that he's proven that he has pretty much all control over all sickness. He's made that clear. I can heal palsies. I can heal fevers. I can heal blindness. I can heal leprosy. You don't have anything on me. But he's also getting them to the point where he is trying to goad the Pharisees into that age-old adage of you have to be able to admit you have a problem before you are able to get past it. Someone who is in denial about whatever it may be, their drug addiction, their, um, their, their issues with grieving or whatever it may be. You have to first admit that, yes, I am not in a good place. I understand that this is not good and healthy for me before you can ever move past that into recovery. That's, that's just old natural science, okay? So here he is really leaning on these Pharisees to go, those people who think they're really healthy should probably take a look in the mirror. They should probably check themselves. They need to understand that the Messiah came for the sick. So if you aren't sick, then you need to think about that. If you don't view yourself as sick, okay, then you need to think about that takes being on the outside looking in to be able to realize that you're not where you should be. So we have to be able to admit that same issue. I am not a holy Pharisee. I am a sick sinner. I need a physician. I need healing. I am not good. Okay? Whatever that may be, whatever the problem is, whatever the issue is, whatever the battle is, if we cave to it and say, no, this is okay. This is an okay lifestyle. 
this is acceptable, then you're not identifying with what Jesus says is your identity. That's what gets me a lot of times when when I when I see people who are kind of stuck in this idea of, well, this is how God made me and I just have to exist here. When you go back and say, no, that's not where God said he wants you to be. He said, I came to die so that you're not stuck where you are right now. That's the whole point. That was the whole story of Jesus. If you take that aspect away, then what did Jesus come here to do? He says, I came to seek and to save the lost. Not for the lost to go, well, I'm lost and that's just where God has left me. And I'm okay being lost. And now I'm going to embrace my lostness and figure out how my lostness works into the greater story of God. No, the greater story of God was you were lost and now I found you. And I brought you out of your lostness into the sheep's pen and saved you. So quit trying to identify with your lostness. It's not a fun place to be. No one likes to be lost. So don't use that as your identity. Understand that it is not what Jesus came to fix. That he came to save you from that. Not tell you how to get along with it and exist in that place. So here with the Pharisees, he's telling them just like John did on the riverbank. Repent. You are not holy. You are not righteous. You are not perfect. Repent and change. Turn away from your self-righteousness and be saved. Or else you'll continue to stay where you're at. You'll continue to live the way you are. You'll continue to look down on sinners and think you're all right. And there's going to come a time the axe is going to lay down to the roots and you're going to be thrown in the fire. Bring forth the fruit that match with repentance. All of that implies you're not staying the same. It's a different lifestyle. It's a different identity. It's the identity that Jesus Christ gives us. So he tells them, go and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Amen. I'm glad about that. Jesus is quoting from Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, for I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And this is a letter written to people who he is about to destroy. Okay? Saying, you think that because you continue to offer sacrifices... That I am somehow okay with you. You know, despite the fact that in addition to offering sacrifices to me, you're offering sacrifices to Baal and golden calves. And you're, you know, mixing with all these people I told you not to mix with. And you've basically completely forsaken me, okay? You still look good, okay? Quote, unquote. You look good. You still offer sacrifices. You know, in Amos 6, he says, you're still making instruments of music like David. You're still trying, you're still looking like you're trying to be like those people, but you are not. Okay. You're using those instruments of David, as he says there, to chant and to make these melodies while you're laying on ivory beds and getting drunk. He's like, that's, that's not what David was doing in the temple. You're doing this thing over here that's not what I told you to do, but you think because you're doing it that somehow you're okay. And I'm here to tell you through Hosea, through Amos, through Isaiah and Ezekiel and all those, there's coming a day of the Lord that you are not going to like. So here he tells the Pharisees, he says, look at what I told your people just a few hundred years ago when I tore them all apart and sent them into captivity. 
It's not your outward show of religion that impresses me. It's not your stuff that you're doing that you're claiming in the name of religious whatever that impresses me. It says, I want to see action spawned out of a repentant, regenerate heart. Mercy, compassion, righteousness, knowledge of God, not just external religious things. Okay? And in fact, he'll tell a group of Pharisees, he'll say, you'll come up to me in the last day going, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these great things in your name? Have we not cast out demons? Have we not done all these things? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. So the external religious does not equal the internal righteous, okay? So here he's telling them, I desire mercy and compassion and knowledge of God. I desired you to have mercy and compassion as he goes through Hosea and other places on the widows, the fatherless, the needy, the homeless. Said more than these sacrifices you keep offering. And again, ignoring the fact that you're also sacrificing to Baal, which is commandment number one. You know, you kind of you're you are not doing what I commanded you to do, even though you think you are. So in Hosea, he's rebuking him and Jesus is rebuking them here. I want you to know this. Is it about your Pharisees, Sadducees, external righteousness? Or is it about what I told Israel a long time ago, which is what I would rather see mercy and compassion. And that's why I am here with these sinners and publicans calling them to repentance. That's mercy. That's compassion. And you can't do that if you're going to stand back with all your religious grandiosity and say, those people, until they get themselves cleaned up, have no place around me. Jesus is saying, no, I'm here with them because that's who I came to call to repentance. So yeah, I'm going to eat dinner with them because I want to sit right beside them and go, that's not your identity. Repent. That's not your identity. That's not who I am calling you to be. I've called you to righteousness. Now repent. And you can't do that if you're sitting sheltered off, locked into your little holier-than-thou world. Well, if they come in here and they get close enough, then I'll tell them about repentance and the joy of the Lord. Well, it doesn't work that way. Didn't work that way in any case in the Bible. Didn't work that way for all of the acts. Didn't work that way for any evangelical thing you see in the Bible. Every one of them show a man going out. They went to areas where people would stone them. Or they went to areas where people would run them out on the rail. And every one of those, they're preaching the same message. Repent and be baptized. Repent and turn. They're going to the broken, to the messed up, to the sinners and calling them to repentance. So we come to that concluding statement there that he did, Jesus did not come to establish a religion. Okay, we understand that, right? That Jesus did not come to establish a religion of just some things you do and then you can call yourself a Christian. You know, you get baptized, you come to church on Sunday, you tithe 10%, and you take the communion, and that makes you a Christian. Okay? He didn't come just to set up a religious ordinance that if you check off the four boxes, then you can walk out and call yourself a Christian. He said, it's going to be more than that. I'm calling sinners to repentance. He says, that's what being a Christian is. Coming out 
and doing something. Coming out from where you were and living a different life. That's what it means to follow me. Not just religious ordinances. Not just things that are of the church. Which, you know, baptism and, and the Lord's Supper and all this stuff are good and right things. I'm not knocking off on that. I'm saying if you think just because you took communion that somehow that makes you automatically a Christian. It doesn't. Okay? What makes us a Christian is following what Christ said. So I can't just take communion, but then come over here and cheat on my wife and go, well, but I'm a Christian because I took communion. No, you're not. You're a Christian when you follow Jesus. Okay? When you repent and turn and follow him. And we also understand that it's not the picture of what we think that looks right. Okay? It's not who we think looks right, who fits into our social norms that looks right. It's who Jesus thinks looks right, okay? And sometimes those are people that do not look like the exact kind of measure of what we think a good follower of Jesus Christ looks like. In fact, if you parade it in, a lot of people from different ethnicities and people who had different cultures, you look at them and be like, well, they don't look like me. I mean, and we all know that Jesus was blue-eyed, blonde-haired, you know? I mean, he was Caucasian, right? I mean, that's the pictures on the walls and everything. And I mean, so I don't see how someone, I just, it's not always going to look like we think it will, okay? And we shouldn't automatically exclude people or write them off because they don't look like or act like or think like, okay, exactly what we think they should. Jesus called Matthew a publican, someone who was not well received by his brothers and sisters around him. Jesus sat down and ate with sinners. And the overwhelming thing that we should take from that is that, number one, we recognize that we're still sinners, right? Okay? So we understand we are sinners. We still fail. We will still fall very, very short. But if Jesus was willing to do that then, he's not ever changed. So he doesn't look at us and he has not looked at us and he doesn't say, well, yeah, but you're just, you're too far out there. Get yourself cleaned up. Okay. Go get righteous. Go get holy. And then I'll come and sit with you. So we should take a lot of comfort and peace in that knowledge that Jesus came to save Sinners, And if we identify this morning that we are sinners, then we can say hallelujah, he's coming for me. Okay? So it should be a great comfort for us. So let us work on these things and we'll continue through this, Lord willing. Sing one verse of a song and then...